Hello and welcome to the 2018 World Cup Preview Magazine from We Love Betting. I'm the editor, Mark O'Hare, and I'm delighted to be joined on the line by North and Central American football expert, John Arnold. Uh, John covers North American and Central American football for the likes of the BBC and Goal, amongst many others too. How are you doing, John? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, delighted you're here. Um, you must be looking forward to the World Cup. Are you, are you heading out to Russia at all or watching on from back home? No, it'll be my first one uh, uh, working there. So I'll be with uh, with Mexico throughout the group stage and kind of keeping an eye on everything else and then see how it shakes out. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, can't wait. Absolutely. Now, before we do get into looking at the nitty-gritty on, on the three CONCACAF teams, I just wanted to ask you about the the USA's failed qualification. Now, obviously, it's probably something quite close to your heart here, but what has the repercussions been like for US football as well as the continent uh, from a sort of wider perspective? Oh, I thought this was going to be a nice chat. But you have to go bring that up, Mark. No, it's uh, you know, I think it's almost too early to say what the repercussions have been. I mean, obviously there was a shakeup in the U.S. Federation. I think if if that hadn't happened, the, the U.S. missing qualifications, Sunil Gulati would still be the president. He's been replaced as a Federation president. We now have a system that that they're putting into place where there's going to be a general manager, sort of a technical director, if you like, and a manager. But but neither of those positions have been filled yet because, and I think this is wise on the U.S.'s part. They're sort of of waiting and, and seeing exactly who's going to be available after the World Cup. Well, you know, if you, if you go out and get someone now, well, probably some of your best options are, are guys who are currently in national team jobs. So they're still playing games. It's been a little frustrating, honestly, watching some of the games because uh, they've called up players who are 30, 31 years old. And, you know, what's the point of that? Those guys aren't going to be involved in the next World Cup cycle. Some of these younger players could use the experience and, and, and sort of the dream maybe to look toward hey, playing in a World Cup, it's possible if I keep you know, working hard and move up at my club and that sort of thing. So it's been frustrating. Uh, and you know, there's a lot of uh, backlash almost to, to some of the World Cup preparations. You, know, you always see the previews and, of course, like the television companies in the U.S. who have the rights. They're scrambling, trying to figure out how the heck they're going to make any money this summer. But uh, I think ultimately it's something where the U.S. could turn this into a positive because they were just sort of treading water. Now you have a chance to maybe take a step forward because there was a real shock to the system. Yeah, I just wanted to ask one more question there. Is people in the U.S., will they be looking on at the World Cup now and supporting maybe Mexico, Costa Rica and Panama as well? Or will they be kind of hoping all three of them fail, especially Mexico? Uh, I do think that most – well, it's a little complicated because there's also an enormous number of Mexican-Americans. When the Mexican national team plays in the United States, the, the stands are absolutely full of Mexican fans, many of them with U.S. passports traveling to the World Cup as Americans to see Mexico play. So in one way, Mexico is absolutely America's team. In another, I think there's a, a fair amount of people who hope that El Tri do horribly and crash out of the World Cup. Panama and Costa Rica, as I'm sure we'll get on to, especially Panama, is a bit of a different story because there's not a lot of hatred in the U.S. Of, of the Central American countries. They're tough places to play. There have been some, you know, regional rivalries. But there's also a lot of players who play in MLS who have, you know, sort of won over the hearts and minds of, uh, of U.S. fans. So I think they'll probably be pulling for that. I've also seen many, many people sort of trying to – and there's even been a couple advertising campaigns of people sort of tracing their ancestry. Okay, my family's Irish. Uh, 
well, that's not going to help you. But okay, my family's Icelandic. My family's Spanish. Uh, I'm going to root for Iceland or Spain or, or, or whatever the case may be. So I think it's going to be a bit of a patchwork quilt of, of who people are rooting for. And even on the, the case of hating Mexico, I'm not even sure we're, we're really uniform there either. So I think there will be plenty polling for L3. There will be plenty polling against L3. The one thing I think is certain is that they'll be the most watched team, Mexico. You know, Certainly they're going to get the television ratings because uh, the U.S. soccer fans who hope they fail will tune in, as will the people who love to, to buy tickets to wave flags and wear the green of uh, Mexico. Interesting stuff. Thanks for that, John. Um, OK, let's talk about the World Cup. Um, Costa Rica, they've been drawn into Group E along with Brazil, Serbia and Switzerland. Brazil have just recently moved into sort of pre-tournament favouritism here. Um, but I guess the group could have been a lot tougher for Costa Rica, is that fair to say? I mean, what are their aims and aspirations here? Is it a similar performance to 2014 or are they just hoping to progress to the knockout stage? Well, I think it depends on who you ask. I think if you ask the, the, the people involved in Costa Rican football, they'd probably say, hey, let's tap the brakes a little bit. Let's try and get out of the group. But obviously the fans, you know, they were set to dream in 2014. You know, now they're sort of a much higher expectation for the Costa Rican national team. So I think the people of Costa Rica are expecting more. But I think realistically, when you look at, you know, what manager Oscar Ramirez has talked about and some of the people around Costa Rican football, they're saying, you know, this, this it's not the toughest group we could have gotten but it's also not easy so i think that personally i think getting out of the group would be a good result for costa rica uh maybe the fans want a little more but but quite frankly i think that might be being a little optimistic yeah you mentioned in there oscar ramirez the new man in charge paolo one shop had a, a bit of a failed stint really as boss after the world cup it was suggested he tried to change a bit too much too quickly so what has ramirez brought to the party since taking over and what sort of coach is he tell us a little bit about him and from what I can gather, he's still relying on most of the old guard from 2014. Yeah, and not only relying on the old guard from 2014, but just sort of relying on his players. He's one of these national team managers, and I think you see it kind of a lot, where he's found a few players that he thinks he can rely on, and he just sticks with them, maybe to his detriment. You, you look at a guy like uh, centre-back Johnny Acosta, who's, who's playing in Colombia right now, uh, and is 34 years old, was part of that 2014 team. He's not fast. He's not great in the air really two things that you kind of need to be a, to be a center back a top quality center back at this level these days and yet he's still sort of one of the first names that I think Ramirez puts on the team sheet backing up a little bit about the man I actually think he's a fascinating figure because you mentioned Paulo Antrope and, and it's sort of Ramirez gets this job by accident you know he, he has never never played a, as a player outside of Costa Rica never managed outside uh, Costa Rica was just sort of in the right place at the right time when Wanchope lost his head and and uh, got a little physical altercation, and uh, and suddenly he's the guy. I think he's done well considering the fact that he doesn't really have, you know, even the international experience of the 2014 manager Jorge Luis Pinto. But at the same time, I, I do wonder if he might struggle to uh, adapt, you know, to a tournament like the World Cup. Costa Rica didn't perform exceptionally well at the Copa America Centenario in 2016. Even the Gold Cup in 2017 goes down as a disappointment. So I'm not entirely convinced that uh, Ramirez is necessarily the right guy to sort of uh, lead Costa Rica past the sort of standard that they set in 2014. Like I said, I think he's just a manager who sort of sticks with what he knows. It's remarkable that he's in this position because of you know the fact that he really doesn't have much international experience. And I think he's done fine, but can he take the ball 
uh, to use an American football metaphor, sort of pick it up and move it forward. Uh, I don't know. I think it's going to be a bit of a struggle for him at this tournament. But maybe I'm wrong. You know, he might be able to pull a few tricks out of the bag. Uh, we've seen him try a couple different formations during uh, his tenure. Uh, moving on, I guess, from the 5-3-2 that served Costa Rica so well, uh, or, or even 5-3-1-1 in a lot of games that served Costa Rica so well in 2014. So uh, we'll have to see how they do. But uh, he's an interesting figure. And I think this is obviously the biggest test he's ever faced. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the formation and the system there, because I was going to ask you, is there a clear playing style and ideology here? What sort of formation and system are they likely to play? And uh, who are the key men that hold this team together? I think we're looking at, even though he's sort of tinkered with doing different things, playing with a four-man back instead of five, uh, you know, trying a few different things up top. I think this team is still probably best in a 5-3-2 or 5-3-1-1. You know, Brian Ruiz is one of those players who's, he, he has to be on the field. He's quite good, uh, very experienced, the Costa Rican captain, uh, despite the fact that Kaylor Navas is also in the team. He's getting a little on in age and didn't play a ton for sporting this year, but uh, at the same time, you know, he, he's a player that Costa Rica needs and relies on. He's best when he's behind the striker. Uh, and I think the striker will be Marco Urena, who's in really good form for LAFC. He has a bit of an injury, uh, but it looks like he's going to be able to overcome that and be on the field in Russia. The issue, perhaps, is that whereas last tournament Costa Rica had pretty phenomenal wingbacks, this year the left wingback isn't, isn't as certain. Uh, they've tried Francisco Calvo out there. He's a center back with Minnesota United at the club level. Ronald Matarita also can fill the role who plays in New York City FC, but he's not seeing time at club level. So I think that's sort of a position to watch. Both those guys are talented. Uh, Matarita specifically is very quick. He's also a good defender when, he, when he's called upon to get back. But joining the attack, he's phenomenal as far as taking men on or putting in crosses. Um, but, you know, we have to see if he's got some rust on him because he really hasn't been involved for New York much this year. Uh, the center backs, as I mentioned, Acosta, you know, if he's one of your starters, uh, you might have some trouble. Duarte and Gonzalez both play at a decent level in Europe. Uh, Duarte with Espanol, Gonzalez with Bologna, but, but neither of them have been playing as much as, you know, a Costa Rican fan would want them to. And even then, you've got those two guys, and then you need a third center back. So is it Acosta? Is it Kendall Waston, uh, who plays in MLS? Probably go with Waston, but, you know, I think there's maybe some limitations. I, I guess, you know, it's sort of the same back line from last time except four years older. So uh, I think that could be something that, that makes Costa Rica a bit limited. At the same time, you know, you've got the World Cup experience for most of those guys and, and that sort of thing. One player that, that maybe gets a little overlooked, even when talking about an overlooked team like Costa Rica, you know, you talk about Navas, you talk about Gonzalez, Ruiz. Well, the, the spine, if you kind of stay in the middle is Celso Borges, who plays for Deportivo La Coruña in La Liga. Uh, generally a pretty phenomenal player, very good two-way. He can certainly win a lot of balls back in the midfield. Uh, I think he's sort of one of the unsung heroes of the CONCACAF region. Uh, definitely doesn't get the credit he deserves, even at home. So I, I doubt that he gets much abroad. Uh, definitely will be a player to watch. If he can be as influential as he normally is, perhaps can give Costa Rica uh, a bit of a boost and, and sort of... Uh, you know, provide a bit of something that, that maybe they're lacking. He was in the last World Cup, uh, has that experience, and has the experience of playing in La Liga. So I think he's he's kind of a, not a star man necessarily, but certainly a player who can make a difference. So when you look at that spine, it's a spine with a lot of experience, but, you know, sometimes we use experience as a code word for old. Uh, so I think those guys are going to have to sort of prove that they've still got what they need to hang with uh, a much younger, uh, sprier attack in Brazil. And even some of the other teams in the group of Switzerland, you know, I think that they also have a few players who are, you know, maybe a bit 
fresher, I guess, than some of the Costa Ricans. So it's going to be a challenge, but I expect Ramirez to kind of revert to what they did in 2014 and, and sort of rely on those three center backs, Borges and, and Yeltsin Tejeda in the middle to break things up. And then, you know, the speed to come from the wings and then try and get forward and find Ureña. Well, you've pretty much just answered my next question there about Costa Rica's biggest strengths and how they're likely to pose the most problems for opposition and also the weaknesses too. It sounds like a, a bit of a lack of pace in centre-half then. I think so. And also just the fact that a lot of these guys, you know, Duarte had a bit of an injury. He hasn't played. Gonzalo's the same. So they're sort of, they're tested. They're not untested, but I think that they sort of need to be tested once again or, or will be tested once again. Um, I'm not convinced that the defense can be as good as, as they were in the last tournament. I think Kaylor Navas, who was already pretty busy in 2014, might be even busier this time around. Uh, but at the same time, if you want to talk about a weakness, I also think up front, you know, you have Orenia coming off an injury. Uh, doing really well with LAFC and MLS. But then after that, the forward depth drops off a cliff. You got a couple players at a local level, Daniel Kalindras from Saprissa, who, who has done really well. And you got Joel Campbell, who still has the talent, still only 25 years old, is on the roster with Real Betis. But pretty much like every single time we ever have talked about Joel Campbell, he's not in great form at the club level. He can't seem to get a foothold. So you know, I don't know if, uh, if Ramirez will feel comfortable tossing him into the starting lineup. He's going to have to have a pretty convincing, uh, you know, couple couple friendly games in training camp to be considered as a starter. So I think the forward depth might be even more concerning than the center backs. Center backs are sort of, you know what you're getting, and you got Navas behind them. So maybe the biggest weakness would just be depth and attack. I'm not sure after Rureña, uh who you really turn to. Maybe it's Campbell, but, uh, you know, he just hasn't really convinced in the past couple years. So uh, I think that's a big issue for the Ticos up front is, is just kind of where do we go if Ureña is still, you know, feeling the effects of that facial injury he suffered and if Ruiz is, you know, maybe has gets stuck back, it ends up working far too too far back, you know, I'm not sure where the attacking threat comes from. It's a shame on Campbell because he's had so much potential, but his his years have been disrupted by injury and obviously form loss as well, which is a bit of a shame. But just moving on then to your assessment of their chances in Group E, uh, do you expect them to progress or go out in the first round? What's your assessment? I'll just quickly reel off the betting for for listeners. Brazil are two to five favourites as we'd expect to win the group. Brazil, sorry, Switzerland seven to one, Serbia nine to one, Costa Rica the outsiders at twenty two to one or nine to two to qualify. Their odds on to finish bottom of the group is that a fair assessment in your eyes? Yeah, I, I actually think so. I mean, I just it's going to be really difficult for them to to match what they did in 2014. I, I think that when you look, you know, Brazil, as you heard and correctly, I think is the odds on favorite. Costa Rica, I, I think that they're going to have trouble with Switzerland. Uh, the schedule actually sort of works out okay for them because if they can get a good result against Serbia, suddenly the doors are open. You know, if you can get a victory, if you can get three points against Serbia, you know, go out, play your heart out against Brazil. If you get a point, great. If you don't, no worries. And then it comes down to what, in theory, would be a decider against Switzerland. But I think they might even have some troubles against Serbia just because, as I mentioned, the attacking depth I'm not super convinced by. I think you may be able to get a goal or two if you keep putting pressure on the on the uh, center trio there. So I think it's, you know, I would actually probably have them finishing third, but but I don't love them to get through. Really interesting stuff there, John. Um, OK, let's talk about Mexico then. They've been drawn into Group F along with uh, Germany, Sweden and South Korea. Quite an interesting group, this uh, what are Mexico hoping to achieve? Have they set any targets? Presumably it's finally to get past the last 16 stage. 
Yeah, exactly. The fifth game is sort of the, the, the term you hear a lot when you're when you're around Mexico. Everyone wants to get to the fifth game. Interestingly, though, I think it's sort of a motivational tactic, but I also think the players really believe it. You know, they get asked about this a lot. What will it take to make the fifth game? What will it take to make the fifth game? What will it take to make the fifth game? And, and multiple players have taken to saying, we're not interested in just making the fifth game. We want to win. We want to win the whole thing. And I do think that that sort of, while maybe you, you could look at it from the outside and call it naive, I also think it's sort of a nice change of culture. You know, in Mexico, the press and the fan base even is very uh, down on the team pretty much in all circumstances. Even though Juan Carlos Osorio has been a pretty good manager from an outside perspective, he's been phenomenal in World Cup qualification, has had setbacks for sure at summer tournaments, but overall I think his tenure has been a largely positive one. He's hated in Mexico by the majority of the fan base. So, you know, there's a lot of negativity that sounds that surrounds the team. So I think with the players inside saying, no, we really do believe that we can win the World Cup, uh, I think it's sort of a, an intentional effort to change the culture from the Mexican players. Now, that being said, if they get to that fifth game, I think the World Cup is a success. And if they, again, if, if they get knocked out at the group stage or if they, again, fail to get past the round of 16, I think it's another failure. So the, the margin for success is very uh, thin. You know, you, you pretty much have to get to the right stage or else it was a failure. But that's sort of the expectation from the fans. And like I said, the players, they're, they're trying to aspire to more. But I think they'd secretly be willing to take just being the first team in several, several attempts to get past the round of 16. Yeah, it's interesting you talk about the expectation. And, and there seems to be a kind of... Um judgment there that they have to get past the last 16 to have a success whereas if people sort of take a step back and look at the draw it's it's been devilishly difficult again obviously Brazil will be expected to win the group and then if you do finish second you're likely to play Germany in the next round has that not been taken into account at all? No, it definitely has. I mean, I, I think the draw was was rough for Mexico, especially the fact that you're in the group with Germany. Uh, so, you know, good luck. Uh, they've already put a beating on Mexico in the 2017 Confederations Cup, the last time the teams met, uh, a 4-1 defeat in, the, in, uh, in Sochi. So, you know, you look and it's, it's going to be a tough group. And even past Germany, you know, Sweden and South Korea are not exactly teams with no footballing history, with no talent. They don't produce players. These are also decent opponents. So for me, the expectation from Mexico has to be to get out of the group. Then, like you said, you probably cross with Brazil. Anything can happen, but you probably cross with Brazil if you go through as a second place team. And it's going to be quite difficult. You know, I think that uh, their sort of recent surge in, in your markets and and just in people's sort of perception of the team as a possible favorite for the World Cup, you know, I think there's a good basis for that. So, you know, maybe if Mexico, you know, puts in a really heroic effort, they don't come back to booze if they're able to get out of the group and lose to Brazil. But uh, anything else, you know, if, even if it's get out of the group and get thrashed by Brazil, I think it's going to be greeted with uh, with frustration from the Mexican fans. OK, I wanted to talk about the coach, uh, Juan Carlos Osorio. You've already sort of suggested he's disliked back home. I was going to ask you that about why that is. And there's a kind of perception over here that it might be the fact that they're considered chokers in these big games and summer tournaments. He's had quite a degree of criticism for his constant tinkering and, and squad rotation as well. But as you said as well, on the surface of it, he's done a good job. So what's going on there? 
The first thing is that he's not from Mexico. I think the Mexicans a lot of times want a Mexican manager. Uh, after the Gold Cup, the CONCACAF championship, he was in the airport and uh, a woman apparently this, – this really stunned me. She took the time to go to the airport, like not to catch a flight, but to wait for Juan Carlos Osorio to get back and yelled at him, go back to your country. Now, that's an isolated incident, but I do think there's sort of an underlying uh, sentiment there that, you know, what is this Colombian dude coming in thinking that he knows everything, talking about Bielsa and Guardiola? What is he doing here? You know, he doesn't belong here kind of thing. The other thing is just the fact that, yeah, in summer tournaments, they've taken big beatdowns. You know, the 7-0 to Chile in the Confederations uh, Copa América Centenario, excuse me, in 2016 was supremely embarrassing. Then Mexico goes out and plays and tries to beat Germany, but ends up losing 4-1. You know, they, they were taken apart by a Germany team uh, in the Confederations Cup that wasn't even Germany's best side. They were down 2-0 within 10 minutes. So there's definitely frustration with how he sort of approaches the, the game. And I think a lot of people just... It's weird because Mexicans love football. It's very, very popular. And the Mexican national team is clearly the most important thing in the country from a sporting perspective, maybe even overall. But uh, people don't necessarily dig into it. And so a lot of people are just wondering, why isn't Chicharito playing? Why is Giovanni Dos Santos playing this game? Osorio, obviously, as a manager, sees things in much more subtle you know, ways and even more so than most managers. You know, He'll say, against this defense against this specific right back i wanted a player who was going to be able to cut inside on his left or or what have you he just has very peculiar tendencies and i don't think that necessarily translate well to a country that loves football but maybe doesn't have the history of digging into tactics that say in argentina or, or the netherlands even england has so i don't know that he's translated well i guess um but that being said if he has a good world cup i think that people will change their tune but I'm not sure it's going to matter because I think if he has a great World Cup, he moves on to a bigger job. And if he has a poor World Cup, Mexico sends him packing and he ends up with probably a less stressful job anyway. <laughs> OK, well, let's step into a tactical corner, shall we? And just let's have a look at Mexico's strengths, if we can, where they're likely to hurt teams, what sort of system and approach they're likely to employ. It looks like a, a team with plenty of threats going forward. Yeah, definitely. And I think the, 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 the strength of the team is in the attack. Even though Chicharito hasn't been necessarily seeing many minutes with West Ham toward the end of the year or even, you know, even back to October, I think when David Moyes arrived, you know, he's still a player who can pop up in the box and hurt you. Carlos Bella is in phenomenal form, a player who can really cut in on his left foot. You know, Osorio likes to play him as a, as a right winger, sometimes tucks him even a little bit deeper. Um, and has him kind of come at teams, get a little head of speed, cut inside on his left to make something happen. Uh, Mexico starts a lot of their attacks from deep with Hector Moreno, the center back. You know, he he sort of uh, is called upon a lot to generate something on the left side, sort of overload that side, and then the ball gets played back to Moreno. He pings it over the top to a player like Vela on the right wing, who's then one-on-one -on -one with his opponent, can usually beat that opponent, and, and is able to attack. You look at Irving Lozano as well, usually going to line up, I think, on the left wing, but also could do it on the right wing. Same same sort of idea, same scenario. Lozano can beat a player one-on-one. -on -one. He can also associate close quarters with, with other Mexico players and, and sort of bring them into the attack. And a lot of times he'll get that opportunity from a ball from the right center back. Nestor Araujo, if he's able to overcome the knee injury, but there are a couple other players there, Diego Reyes maybe, who who Mexico could put there to uh, to sort of start the attack from deep. Uh, Osorio likes to do a 4-3-3. The big question is, who's the central midfielder in a 4-3-3? 
could be Rafa Marquez, but the 39-year-old doesn't have a ton of speed in his legs anymore, obviously. You know, he wasn't even one of the better at- uh, defenders this year for Atlas in Liga Mekis, not even a top team in Liga Mekis. So you wonder, uh, while it's a beautiful story, if he comes on and plays in his fifth World Cup, uh, it might be quite difficult for him to keep the pace uh, if he's asked to play against a team like Germany. But uh, maybe he gets in against the Sweden and South Korea and is able to make the difference. Uh, I don't know. If not, it's Hector Herrera, who's a great player, two-way player, but but isn't necessarily the best at sitting you know sitting in front of a defense and breaking up attacks. So their strength, I think, is is their wings: Lozano, Vela, uh, even Jesus Tecatito Corona from Porto, who can who can also kind of cut in. And uh, and you know, I think one of the things that Mexico's fans have criticized the team for is they want someone just pounding balls over the top to Chicharito. But I think he's become a more multi-dimensional player under Osorio you'll see Chicharito coming back outside of the box and and coming and starting scoring opportunities he's not just that player anymore who has to start the penalty spot and then head it in you know he's doing a little more now and I think that that one of the reasons that he and some of the other players but but specifically him has been so faithful and full-throated in their defense of Osorio against these criticisms is that I think he truly recognizes that Osorio has made him a better player he's asked him to do different things he's asked him to be a more fully formed forward essentially and and I think that Chicharito has become a better player because of Osorio so uh, I, w- I would say yeah the, the the trident up top if it's Lozano Chicharito Bela I think you have a really dangerous front three that that even if Mexico's defense is going to ship a few goals they might be able to hang with some top teams because these guys are going to be able to find the back of the net yeah, absolutely. So, kind of taking what you've just said there, um, are we look, uh, from a, a sort of weakness perspective, are we looking at potentially centre midfield of a 4 3 and, and possibly defensively as well? Yeah, centre midfield and fullbacks. Uh, you know, I mentioned the centre midfield issue. There's not. He, Osorio might take Jesus Molina's on the preliminary roster. It's possible that Molina, the Monterrey midfielder, goes and, and does serve that. He plays well in the air, uh, which is something that Osorio really prioritizes. He, he loves to have players who can be strong in the box, can can sort of leap head away corner kicks. Uh, for as bad as Mexico's been at defending set pieces, Osorio puts a pretty high premium on them. And then on the wings, it's uh, fullback. It's likely that, that Carlos Salcedo is the right back. He's had a really good year with Eintracht Frankfurt as a center back. He had good seasons with Chivas and even back to Real Salt Lake as a center back. But with really no right-back option that Osorio trusts, it's fallen to Salcedo and Diego Reyes, who's another centre-back, to sort of fill that role. Miguel Layun on the left is is usually pretty solid. But Osorio also maybe will go to three centre-backs and put Layun as a winger or, or, or even you know as a full-back. We've seen Layun play even for Sevilla as a winger. He's really talented getting forward, uh, very good at crossing the ball. His shot, sometimes right on target, sometimes in row, uh, row Y or Z, I would say, as American. I know you guys say Z. But, uh, you know, sometimes he just blasts these horrible shots, but sometimes he puts them on target. So he can be a big danger. And I think Osorio and other managers that Layuna have played for have wondered, could I make this guy not a defender? Could I have him play as a winger? The answer for Osorio is yes, but then you're sacrificing a lot because then you have no good fullbacks instead of just one good fullback. So uh, those are the big weaknesses for Mexico, the center midfield and the the outside defender positions, um, which, again, Osorio sometimes tries to minimize by playing just a three at the back and then sort of putting Andres Guardado, Jonathan Dos Santos and Hector Herrera all in the in the center of midfield trying to sort of uh, form kind of, I guess, a, you know, defensive midfield by committee almost but uh it's an issue that, that that's dogged mexico and i'm not so sure rafa marquez is a solution so we're gonna have to see if if there's a player like that that was one of the reasons they were overrun like they were against germany was that they sort of tried to roll without 
uh, someone helping the center back sitting in front, uh, stopping that that space from you know at the top of the box, and and you know some of the guys. I think Goretzka was able to take advantage of it, and you saw even Timo Werner finding space there. So uh, that's one of the big things, and and one of my big questions going into that first game against Germany is what the heck is Osorio going to do there? Interesting. So looking at the group as a whole, then what's your assessment of their chances and? Are we going to be looking at another last 16 exit? I'll just reel off the betting quickly. Uh, Germany, understandably, 49 favourites. Mexico, 6-1, to one, second favourites to win the group. Sweden, 8-1. to one, Korea, 20-1. to one. To qualify, Mexico are 5-4. to four. That's odds against, which looks pretty decent on paper. Are you expecting them to get out of the group? I think they will. I think that they're a better team than Sweden and South Korea. I think the way that Osorio prepares his teams to face unknown opponents will, will give them advantage over Mexican teams in the past. Um, and even then, Mexico teams in the past have been able to get out of the group. So I like them to finish second. You know, it's tough to pick against Germany, and I'm not going to be the man brave enough to do it. But, but I think that Mexico is going to be able to get out as the second team in this group. Right, let's talk about Panama then. They're into Group G with Belgium, England and Tunisia. Quite a difficult pull for the debutants. Uh, are they just happy to be here or are they setting any aims about what they want to try and achieve on their first ever World Cup? Uh, it, it sounds a little harsh, but I think they're just happy to be here. Or at least that's what uh, Hernan Gomez, the manager, wants people to think. Uh, and I, I don't think – I'm not saying that as like Panama is going to be some secret surprise team and, and Gomez wants to lull them into a false sense of security. I think he's very realistic about his team's chances or perhaps lack of chances. And, and he wants the fans who are incredibly excited. It's Panama's first World Cup. It's a generation of players who have worked very hard to get their country to this point. And so people are starting to say, well, maybe we have a chance, maybe we have a chance. And, and, and I think he's saying tap the brakes here. You know, while other managers in CONCACAF are trying to get fans to believe in their teams, uh, Panama is saying, please don't believe in us. We don't want to put the expectations too high. And quite frankly, I think that's wise. You know, happy to be here sounds harsh, but I think they will be happy to be here. I think there'll be a fun kind of breath of fresh air. One of those teams is a joy to watch. They're a joy off the field to deal with the players. Uh, you know, most of them have a really nice mood about them. I would be stunned if they play past three games in the World Cup. Ah, well, they've been quite a bit of a bit of a nearly team recently in, in World Cup qualifying and even Gold Cup tournaments too. Uh, and their route to Brazil was, you know, it was far from serene, was it? Just explain to listeners how things unfolded there because it was quite remarkable towards the end. Yeah, it was. You know, well, in 2014, well, 2013, I guess, qualifying for 2014, they were all set. Everything was going to be, you know, perfect for them to get into the playoff. And, and, you know, against New Zealand, you had to like your chances. And then suddenly the U.S. scored two late goals to beat Panama. Mexico gets through into the playoff and, and, and everything just got turned on its head within a matter of minutes. So this time around, they didn't want to leave it as late. Uh, and, and they didn't. You know, it was still a tough qualification uh, cycle in the in the hexagonal, but they were able to get through. Uh, Roman Torres, a center back, playing sort of as an emergency striker with Panama needing a goal in uh, I think it was their penultimate qualifier uh, to kind of secure their position, uh, comes forward as this big hulking guy with huge uh, huge kind of. Uh, hair and just he's just a unique looking guy a, a real pleasure uh, off the field but just a menace on it he, he gets forward he scores the goal and Panama's into the World Cup the celebrations lasted uh, days and days because it was already during their national month there's two different uh, independence days they celebrate 
in that month and then they're able to get through so it was just uh, it set off wild parties the players were and still are national heroes and and like i said i think that's maybe where some of the expectation comes from because people were saying well we weren't able to qualify in 2014 but but now we're qualified you know we still got the same guys these guys are all you know uh, giving everything they have for panama and, and I, i'm not trying to diminish their effort but i think that you know if this team had qualified in 2014 they would have been more successful than they are this time around because you look at some of the names and and some of their ages really is is sort of the key and You've got Jaime Pinedo, the goalkeeper, 36. All right, he's a goalkeeper, so whatever. But then you've got Felipe Beloy, the center back. He's 37. Uh, Blas Perez, who probably will see minutes up at striker up top. He's 37. You know, these guys probably extended their careers to try and get Panama to another World Cup. And now that they're in the World Cup, are sort of hanging on by a thread uh, in a lot of cases. So uh, it's been a tough run. They've finally done it. And to me, that's the reward, anything else that they do at the World Cup is going to be kind of bonus, just a, an icing on the cake if, if they're able to do anything. Okay, so Coach uh, Gomez, he, he led Colombia and Ecuador to the World Cups as well. Um, what's he done differently, if anything, since taking charge? Uh, has there been any sort of change in how Panama play in the last four years? Well, it's interesting. There really hasn't necessarily been in the last four years, but there's going to be at the World Cup. Panama has, has been sort of a traditional 4-4-2 team, sometimes going with a diamond in the midfield. But but, but normally we've seen kind of a normal back four. Uh, normal might not be the right word because there's been times where he's played four center backs as sort of the back four, even though, you know, in asking center backs to play right or left back. But uh, it's everything is indicating that he's going to play five at the back of the World Cup. I, I really think that Gomez feels, and probably not incorrectly, that he's just going to be outmanned at the World Cup. And so he's going to do everything possible to sort of be that team that sits back and hits on the counter. Not sure that they have the speed to hit on the counter even, but maybe, just maybe, if you sit back enough and have Jaime Pinedo in the goal, you can you can be one of those teams who sort of fends off several attacks from another team and, and is able to sort of sneak out a result. But, you know, that's not how Panama has played in qualification. I think they've been a fun team to watch a lot of times. Uh, a lot of, you know, association in the midfield. They've had various players kind of pass through as, as players who can make plays, uh, you know, up front attacking players. Uh, so it, I think it's going to be a bit of a shame because I don't think the world will see how Panama's usually played. Uh, I think they're going to see a pretty defensive team with five at the back and, and just kind of hoping to, uh, to hang on. That's quite interesting because from an outside perspective, you look at qualification and Panama only scored nine goals in the in the final stage of qualifying. As mm-hmm. you've already mentioned, they're quite an ageing side too. So to actually hear that they're, they probably back home open up a bit more and get forward a little bit more might look to, to us outsiders that they're um, well, a little bit unusual really because looking at Panama, um, I would say experience, team spirit, unity, and probably a clear, defined, and disciplined style of play was their positives. But you're suggesting it might be a complete change of approach here. I think so. I think Gomez has been sort of working on it. He had a couple different friendlies with domestic-based players, uh, and he's already sort of trying to implement, tried to implement that uh, that style in April. Uh, I think it's going to continue uh, as we go through May. You know, they have a couple of friendlies. You know, it's been pretty difficult for them. They haven't had very great results uh, in, in since they've qualified for the World Cup. So. Like I said, I mean, I think he just is kind of, you know, looking at his team and thinking, hold on, I don't know if I have the horses to compete here. So uh, I think we're going to see a shift. Okay, so of the current crop or, or players potentially in the mix to, to play in the World Cup, are there any going? Are there going to be any surprise players coming through? Any sort of breakthrough stars that we need to know about? 
Yeah, one player who's coming off an injury. I, I think he was sort of dead on to be a, a breakout star, I guess, at the World Cup. And then he got hurt. Is uh, Ismael Diaz. He's only 21. He's a forward um, in the Deportivo La Coruña system. He played for their second team uh, for most of the season before he got hurt. Uh, one of those players that Panama lacks, really, a player who can sort of uh, create for himself, can beat a player in the one-on-one, uh, because Blas Perez, Luis Tejeda, they're not going to do it. Um, you know, they, they just don't have the legs anymore. Uh, Diaz is a player who can do that, so if he is healthy and he's been named to the, the provisional squad, uh, I, you know, he's a player who can make a difference. Another player who, who sort of was on the track to be a, a, a nice uh, nice winger was Valentin Pimentel. He got in a bit of uh, trouble, you know, off the field. So he's back in in the Panamanian domestic league. He's a player who could break out. I, I really liked him two, three years ago, but he's taken a step back because of the indiscipline. And you also look at a guy like uh, Edgar Barcenas, who was in the Mexican second division, uh, helped his team to the championship. Also quite difficult to deal with and shifty. So th- those are three guys who, you know, up front, you, know, you look at their back, uh, I don't think there's really anybody who, who's going to be an unknown. But those are a couple guys who up front maybe could make a difference and maybe even could convince Gomez, hey, we don't need to be as uh, defensive as, as maybe he's implied. And, you know, like I said, maybe he's just doing that to sort of try and take the expectations off and he's planning to sort of be a little more uh, adventurous than he's letting on. Uh, if so, I think uh, Pimentel, Diaz, and uh, Edgar Barcenas are going to be three players who, who he'll really need to rely on. Interesting stuff. Okay, well, let's look at Group G as a whole then. Um, as we might expect, Panama are, are, are massive outsiders here. Belgium, five to six favourites to win the group. Then England at 13 to 10. Tunisia, 28 to 1. Panama, as big as 66 to 1 or 12 to 1 to qualify. Their odds on to finish bottom of the group. I guess the draws kind of stumped them as well, playing England and uh, Belgium in the first two games. But are we looking at Panama trying their absolute hardest to get something out of that final game against Tunisia to, to go home? Uh, you know, without a three defeats from three? I think so. And, and even just doing that, I think, would be a big accomplishment. You know, we can talk about the World Cup expanding and, 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 and you know, kind of changing face of international football and how everyone can, can beat everyone on any given day. We've seen a lot of the minnows sort of rising up and becoming better. I think all of that is true. And at the same time, I still think it would be a massive achievement for Panama and just a, a, you know, a triumph. This is a country that, that is, first of all, tiny and second of all, prefers baseball. So you, know, you look at a country that, that really for years and years and years has been far more interested in how Panama, Panamanians are doing in Major League Baseball than, than anything they're doing on the football field. And now all of a sudden, not only are they in the World Cup captivating the country, if they're able to get a point or three points against Tunisia, uh, you know, to kind of send them off, I, I think it would be – a beautiful story honestly even if they don't get out of the group i don't like their chances you know obviously you get in a group with belgium and england even if you're a pretty solid team it's going to be difficult when you're a team that that has as many weaknesses as panama does uh it's quite hard but you know if they can get uh something out of that last game i think it would be you know uh, well done to panama i guess if they're able to do that i think that it would give the fans back at home something to sort of hang on to and look with the world cup expanding and and with panamanian football continuing to grow a new generation starting to come through not quickly enough for this world cup but maybe you know future tournaments in concacaf that can make some noise and then be back at the world cup for years eight years and look at this team as the pioneers I, i think that would be a successful world cup even if they don't get out of group stage 